Looking at that title, Tolerating the Intolerable, um, Matthew and I were signing the FIC uh, declaration just before the service, and one of the things in that that we have to sign is that uh, Panlang Free Church accepts the FIC ethos statements on ministry, women in ministry, um, that basically that there is two distinct roles that God has appointed, one to man and one to woman, and it's not a woman's place to have authority in the church over man. Uh, their gospel unity and ecumenism, uh, that basically that we are not to uh, be united with those who do not hold to the same fundamental truths in the gospel, and their statement on same-sex marriage, that fundamentally it is God-sided is wrong, period, and that there is no... You know, I took one during the week and he was saying, how did it go and how do you answer that question? How does a funeral service go when the person, as far as you know, has died, is not saved? And, you know, what, what, what can you say? You preach the gospel and you rest in that. But you, what words of comfort can you offer to grieving families when, as far as you know, that person has died outside of Christ? There is no comfort. There is no hope. And yet, how the church compromises on these things how it tolerates that which in God's sight is intolerable for the sake of fitting in and being culturally acceptable and, and just attracting people in in the wrong sense of the word. So we come to this fourth letter and we come to the city of Thyatira to which Christ writes. As you see there on the uh, map, uh, these letters actually travel around in a sort of um, clockwise direction he's travelled up the west coast uh, and now we're going inland Thyatira is an inland um, city it's a fertile valley where there's many trade routes at the time of the letter it had recently been rebuilt by Roman money following the destruction of much of the city by an earthquake thanks Steve It's a great commercial centre with numerous traders. There are coins that have been found there with images on them expressing of uh, great wealth and, um, and success. It uh, has a theatre there, or it had a theatre there. Uh, many woolen and linen cloths were made and sold in the city in expensive deep red and purple colours. It was also a centre of trade between bronze workers, tanners, potters and bakers. There was also uh, slave trade in the market there. As well as the Christian community in Thyatira, there was also a Jewish community, although we know very little about it. And there was, of course, worship of false gods. Worship of false gods and... Sorry, I got that wrong way, did I? Worship of false gods and uh, worship of the emperors, the Roman emperors, and a Jewish community living there in that city. So much for Thyatira. But what's this letter about? Well, as so often, we get a clue straight away in the way that Jesus describes himself there in the opening verse. Verse 18, who has eyes like a flame of fire. We're back in chapter 1 again, aren't we? Do you remember in verses 14 to 15 of chapter 1? What we read there, the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. 
And we said back then when we were looking at it, have you ever had that experience when you stand before somebody, and especially if you're in the wrong and you know you are, and they just look at you, and, and it's just like you feel their eyes burning into you and you think they know, you know? And you just got that overwhelming sense that I'm in the wrong here and you're trying, to, you're trying not to admit it and you're trying not to show it, but those eyes just seem to burn into you. And this is Christ, the one who knows all. This is the one from whom nothing is hidden. He is God. And he comes to his church and as he views his church and as the church sees him looking at them, it's like his eyes just see straight through them. Nothing can be hidden from him. He has all knowledge. Do you remember when Peter, oh Peter, Peter who could never think before he spoke, Peter who would make great rash promises without thinking of the consequences of them. Peter who promises, if all else deserts you, I will not. And Jesus says to him, this night you will deny me three times before the cock crows. And then Luke records for us what happens. And Luke tells us a little detail that the other gospel writers omit. This is what Luke says in Luke twenty-two sixty-one: After Peter's denied him the third time, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter... And the Lord's gaze just comes on Peter and Peter suddenly sees Jesus looking at him. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. Jesus looks and suddenly Peter remembers. And suddenly Peter's overwhelmed with what he's done and he goes out weeping. And that was in his humanity. Now as he writes, he's the ascended, glorified, Lord of Lords, King of Kings. And he looks at his church and he says, I see you. I know you. And not only that, look at his feet like burnished bronze. It's a description of a, a, a general going into battle. He's leading his army, he's marching, he's triumphing, he's trampling down his enemy. It's the conquering king. Let me ask you a question before we go any further. Do you possibly sometimes forget who it is we come to worship? Do you sometimes possibly forget who is your saviour? I mean, we went through a period, didn't we, back in the sort of 60s, 70s, for those as old as me who can remember such times. I only vaguely remember the 60s, but uh, it's only the 70s. When, you know, there was this great movement and, and Jesus was suddenly a, a popular name to be banding about. But it was, it was, there was no reverence with it. It was like, my mate Jesus. You know, Jesus and I, we're like that sort of thing. You know, I'm, and I'm, just, I'm just talking to Jesus now. And it, it's like, he's nobody. He's the King of Kings. He's the Lord of Lords. He's the one who sees into your heart. He's the one who sees into your mind. He's the one who tramples down his enemies. Now you fall flat on your face before him, adoration and worship. He rules the cosmos. Now let's take the same format with this letter as we have with several of the previous letters. Let's look first at what they get right. Verse 19. How does it read there? I know your works. Your love and faith and service and patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. Well, that's pretty good, isn't it? I mean, that's an impressive list. 
let's be encouraged again by the show as we come to these verses. Christ is always quick to commend us where he can. He is quick to identify what he can say in our favour. Nothing that we do that is right does he overlook. Nothing that we do that is right does he neglect to praise us and indeed to reward us for. So easy for us to get such a mindset that we see the the magnitude of the problem we face as a little church and a big community out there and a, and a world with its massive needs and, and to sort of feel overwhelmed and swamped and, and all we can do is this little bit but Christ sees that little bit and Christ honours us for that little bit and Christ will reward us for that little bit if we get it right and he's able to itemise here four specific areas where he commends them for what they've been doing firstly their love do you remember where we started with the church at Ephesus, that first letter? And what was the one thing he held against that church at Ephesus? You've forgotten your first love. You're not in love with me like you were at the start. You're doing all the practice, you're doing all the things, you're doing all the activity, and in the midst of it all somewhere, your love for me has died. Well, not this church. No, they still love the Lord, very much so. They love the Lord they love God's people, they love their service of the Lord and Christ commends them for that. Secondly, they're a faithful people. And that's a fairly rare thing in churches, isn't it? You can say of a church that they're truly faithful. Well, there's certainly one thing in which they failed, they've been unfaithful, but apart from that, the Lord says you've been faithful. Many, many areas that he could identify, he says you've been faithful in that and then thirdly, their service. You get tired of service sometimes. And before you put your hands up, I don't mean the service. I don't mean are you tired of this. I mean, do you get tired of serving God? It can be hard work at times, can't it? I've got to be honest, over the last three weeks, there have been times when I've not thought, oh joy, we can go to Oxford Close now. Um, you know, you see the things piling up at home you know and, and all the things that are not getting done and you think I'd really sort of like to do some of these but we need to go over to Oxford Close and as we looked at the church meeting what does God call us to do? to serve him with joy and what did God say to the Israelites but, you know if, if you serve me with joy all these blessings will be yours if you don't I will hand you over to your enemies because you did not serve me with joy and delight. It's not enough to serve God. We've got to do it joyfully. And this church were. He says, I can commend you for your service. The word translated service here um, is, is the sense of ministering to each other. It's the same word from where we get the deacon from. And this was a deaconing church, in other words. When a need arose, when someone had a need, the church, not just the leadership, but the church, the, 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 the fellowship was quick to come alongside and help they had that heart, that servant heart to say, you need my help, how can I help you? Well, someone needed a lift somewhere three horses, a chariot and a couple of people carriers pulled up at the door they were that sort of church and fourthly they were a church who patiently endured they weren't a flash in the pan church they weren't one of these churches that opened with a big public spectacle you know and everyone turns up and two weeks later it's, it's closing down again 
They weren't one of these churches that keeps starting up new programs and then dropping them five minutes later. They, they, they were patiently, enduringly doing God's work day in, day out, week in, week out. They were loving the Lord. They were being faithful and they were serving one another. And then God adds this little postscript to it. Jesus says this, and don't you just love this, and that your latter works exceed the first. They're not tailing off. They're actually ramping up. You know, when the leadership comes and says, hey look, um, we believe the Lord will have us do this as well. They don't all say like, oh no, not something else. You know, we're struggling with what we're doing now. They're like, come on, we'll, we'll do it. What a wonderful picture of a church. And my friends, we should be encouraged by that because we can see ourselves in measuring that, can't we? To the degree that we love the Lord, the Lord will commend us for that. Personally, individually and corporately. To the degree that we are faithful to the Lord, he'll commend us for that. To the degree that we serve one another, gladly, joyfully, submissively, God commends us for that. To the degree that we endure patiently, God again commends us for that. And if we're doing more than we were at first, the Lord says that is good, that is right, that's how it should be. So much they get right, but see what they get wrong. Verses 20 to 23. I suggest you immediately get the sense of how wrong this wrong is by the fact that he covers everything they've got right in one verse and now he spends four verses going into the one thing that they've got wrong. It might only be one thing against four, but it's four times as bad as those four good things put together, if we put it that way. Now, what is it they've got wrong? What is this? They've got a woman in the church. No, I didn't say that. It's that there is a particular woman in their church who he calls Jezebel. Now, straight away we have to say we don't know whether that was actually her name or whether he's calling her Jezebel uh, because he sees uh, a resemblance in her spell of the Old Testament. We don't know. It might well have been that was her name. But you see, there is this woman in the church who is doing that which is wrong. And instead of dealing with it, the church are tolerating it. She is encouraging the Israelites into false religion and immoral conduct. She's ruining not just her own life, but the life of others. Not just her own witness, but the witness of the church. She is doing Satan's work there in the very midst of God's church. And the church is not responding to it. The church is not dealing with it. Christ's calling is that we should be a holy, called out, separate people. That we should radiate Christ. We should be like a light set on a hill. We should be like a, 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 a lighthouse blazing out in our, our society. And this woman is ruining it all. My friends, we're called to show discernment. We're called to not tolerate that which is intolerable. And we cannot do that without showing discernment, without looking at what's happening and recognizing when something's wrong and saying, Stop, that is wrong. And the trouble is in the culture we live in and the generation we live in, that's the one thing you mustn't do. You're, you can, the only thing that's intolerable is to be intolerant. So it would seem. 
The one thing you must never do is say, you are wrong, stop what you're doing. And yet that's exactly what Christ insists they should have done. And they must do. And the church had failed in that regard completely. Now what's it all about? Well, we don't know exactly what it's about. We can make a guess. And the guess would probably be this. That if you remember where we started in Thyatira, it was a centre of great commerce. It was a centre with all these guilds. It was a centre with all these professions. And, and to be part of that, uh, you had to sign up to these guilds. You had to join these guilds. They were a bit like trade unions uh, back uh, a couple of decades ago, where if you wanted to be in that work, you needed to belong to that guild. And these guilds had associated with them a god. They, they had an idolatrous god who was the god of that guild. And, and part of what you would do as a member of that guild is you would attend um, meetings in which idolatrous worship would take place, immorality would take place, there would be generally a sort of a, uh, a sexual, what, what, you know, what you feels good, do it sort of type event after it. And as Christians there in that city, you're faced with a choice. What are you going to do about this? It, it, that's my business, that's my trade if I want to get on in it, if I want to be successful maybe even if I want to have a livelihood in that, I need to join that guild but if I join that guild I'm going to be supporting something that's of the devil and I'm going to be drawn into all sorts of things that I shouldn't be doing as a Christian, what do I do? and here in the church is this woman Jezebel who's saying, do it and I don't know what ground she's saying what sort of reason she's putting forth it might be, you're saved um, God has covered your sin uh, you know God's grace will cover it I don't know what she's saying but whatever she's saying she's persuading them to participate in sexual immorality and in idolatrous worship look at verse 20 I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Let's just unpack that a little bit for a few minutes, shall we? Because I think these verses are very important. Here's the first thing he says against her. She says she's a prophetess. She's claiming that what she's saying is not only okay by God, but has actually come from God. That God has told her to say this. Don't you love those people who say, God has told me, and then say whatever it is they want to say, and you're expected to accept it simply because they claim that God has told them that. Remember Stuart Briscoe talking about it once at a Bible study many, many, I was in my early 20s. And he said, I've tried everything to answer people like that. He says, uh, someone comes up to you and say, the Lord has said to me. And then he said, they always ask you what you think. And he said, I've, I've tried. What does it matter what I think if God's told you? He said, that does implicate them. So they, the Lord has told me. And I said, well, it's funny. I was talking to him a little while ago and he never said anything to me about it. He said, that does implicate them. The Lord has told me. I said, well, if he said it, I totally disagree. He says, that does implicate them either. He says, whatever you say, you don't get anywhere with them because the Lord has told them. Now, if the person says, the Lord has told me this and then follows it up by saying, look, this is what the scripture says, praise the Lord. But if they say, the Lord has told me and then what they say, they cannot support from scripture. I would not take that as of any higher than what anybody else says. And if it contradicts scripture, 
I would throw it out the window instantly. God does not tell you something that contradicts his word. Remember a lady telling me of a friend of hers who was married to a non-Christian. Um, she was a Christian before she married him. And this man apparently was abusive and her life was fairly intolerable being married to him. And I said to the person who was telling me this, well, of course, she did the wrong thing in the first place, didn't she, in marrying him? No, the Lord told her to. I said, no, he didn't. The Lord said very clearly, do not be unequally yoked. The Lord does not tell you something contrary to what he says in his word. She chose to do what the Bible told her not to do and is suffering for it. No, this woman is standing here saying, I'm a prophetess. God has spoken to me. This is what God says. Now, do you see how scripture actually describes her? How Jesus actually describes her? Who calls herself a prophetess. He says, I don't call her one. I've not qualified her. This isn't from God. He says, she has taken it on herself to call herself a prophetess. She's one of those of whom Jesus speaks back there in Matthew chapter 7, verse 22, when he says, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I, declared, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus says there are many people in this world who are claiming to be prophets, who are claiming to perform miracles in my name. You see them regularly on the TV if you turn into some of these programs. Send us your money and I will heal you or God will heal you through me and all this rubbish. Jesus says, yeah, they can do that. They can say they're doing it in my name. And on that day I will say to them, I never knew you. That's the first thing that's wrong. There's the second thing that's wrong here. She's taking it upon herself to fulfill what is a man's service in the church. She's teaching in the context of the church. That's what it says. It uses the word teaching. She's claiming divine authority for what she's saying and taking it upon herself to stand up and be a teacher in a church where the men should be teaching. And then thirdly, what she's teaching is clearly contrary to biblical teaching. She's seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. First of those is unquestionably wrong. It's absolutely without question that scripture makes it clear that sexual immorality is wrong, period. The second one you might want to argue over, you can uh, pull certainly um, reasons in places that uh, food, whether it's been offered to a, a, an idol or not, there is nothing inherently uh, wrong in that food but he makes it absolutely clear that you do not go into a place that is set up for the worship of false gods and partake of that meal that they've got there which is in honour of that false god and that's what she's calling them to do so on both counts she's doing what he's teaching what is wrong and the end result is that believers were joining in in idolatrous worship and drunken sexual parties. I'll ask you a question. How often does the same situation arise today? The temptations to sin that we're presented with might be different. I mean, I don't think as many people coming into churches advocating that we should uh, go down to the local, whatever it might be, um, Muslim temple or something and join in 
the ceremonies with them there. There are some advocating that. But by and large, that's not the issue within the church, is it? They might be different, but gender issues. Blending in with society, not, not being exclusive, but inclusive. The, the call to not speak about hell to downplay hell or to deny the existence and reality of an eternal hell the sovereignty of God to to make God nothing less than someone who has done a work and now has presented it to the world saying now it's up to you, it's in your hands I want you to be saved but really you're going to have to choose and come to me because I'm impotent, I've just done what I've done and all it takes is one person in a church who claims authority from God to speak who breaks the rules of the church in how they speak and who is not immediately called to order and called to account by the leadership of that church that's all it takes to lead a church into the temptation of sin and then into sin and then under God's censorship and chastisement used to preach at a little church David would know it, David's preached there as well in a village not that far from here and apparently at one time they had quite a thriving church there, quite a uh, big youth work there and uh, a man came into that church and talking to one of the elderly men who was still there, who was a deacon in the church when I used to go there and preach, he said I was the only one in the church when he came who was trying to sound a, a warning that he said that he was such an attractive speaker, he was such a charismatic personality, and everyone was so pleased that he'd come, and they all listened to him, and he said what he was saying was not biblical. And it ended up with him taking off a whole section of the church. They went up, I think it was up in Scotland or somewhere, and started some community, destroyed the witness of the church in the village, decimated the church, and all because one person had come in claiming with God's authority to speak taking upon himself to speak and speaking that which he couldn't support from scripture and it destroyed the viability of the witness of that church for years in the small community where it was and the charge is not only against the participants but also against those who verse 20 tolerate it Now he makes it clear because he speaks of those who have resisted it. He he talks uh, further on, doesn't he? Um, But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. I mean, there are those in the church who are saying, that's wrong, we don't want anything to do with it, and they're separating themselves from it. God's saying, that's great. But there are others who are tolerating it. They're saying, yeah, I, I, I know she's a bit of a crank, I know, I, you know, but there's no real harm in it. She's our sister in the Lord. You know, we, we, we've got to love each other. We, we, we've got to support each other. We, we've got to encourage each other. You, you, mustn't, you mustn't come down on her. That's, that's, that's not right. And isn't that exactly the cry in the church today? So much. Oh, I know the Bible says that's wrong, but, you know, you've got to look at that in the culture of the day when it was written. You've got to look at where we are in the culture of the day where we are today. And while we might not practice those things ourselves, we mustn't condemn those who do. 
I mean, I mean, look at the growth of homosexuality within the church. It, it wouldn't have been comprehended 20, 30 years ago. In the church, maybe 20, so not 40 or 50 years ago. In the church. And, and it's not just that people are doing it, but people are tolerating other people doing it. They're saying, well, I don't, I'm not going to do that. That's not me personally, but we mustn't condemn those who do. We, we, we've got to embrace it. We've got to embrace them. We've got to encourage them. We've got to... We can't stand in judgment on them. We can't say they're wrong just because we don't do what they do. And Christ says, but I've given you my word that you can discern what is right and what is wrong and you do not tolerate what is intolerable to me. And Christ describes her as an adulteress and those who follow her as adulteress. They're supposed to be the pure, holy bride of Christ. And they're acting like anything but. So Christ says, if it's necessary, I will come myself and I will deal with it. And then, not only you, but the churches round about will know that I'm God. And my friend, unless we want Christ to come and deal with us ever, we need to be careful. We need to guard what we know is true, what we know is right, what we know is holy, what we know honours the Lord, and not compromise on it and stand up for it and defend it. And if that means we make ourselves unpopular, if that means that we can't enjoy fellowship that we have done in the past with some other people, then so be it. Because it is better to honour Christ than it is to remain friends with those who dishonour Christ. My friends, how important do you see the honour of Christ in the corporate life of the church? Let's go back where we started. Christ walks in his churches. Christ is here tonight. Christ looks at us as his radiant bride. Christ is preparing us for glory. And Christ wants to be honoured and glorified and magnified by us. And we do that in how we think and how we speak and how we act. Now just see a little parallel here that we need to notice. Do you remember the church at Ephesus, the first one we looked at? They had spotted the false teaching and they'd rejected it. But they'd lost their love of Christ. This church has still got their love of Christ, but they haven't spotted the false teaching and dealt with it. It's not one or the other. We've got to do both. We've got to have our love of Christ and we've got to be discerning and deal with that which is wrong. So see finally what they're promised if they overcome. Verse 24 to 29. He says, if you've discerned this and you're standing against this, I'm not putting any other load on you. This again, as we saw with the other church, the church at uh, Smyrna. It's, It's not that... Christ is saying there isn't anything else wrong that you need to address, but he's saying, but you, you, you're going down the right road. Just, just press on with what you're doing. And he says, for those that overcome two things, first of all, we will rule with Christ's authority. To him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from the Father. If we honour him, he will honour us. 
And secondly, verse 28, we will be given the morning star. I don't know how you responded when that was read. I don't know what that triggered inside of you. What is the morning star? Well, I'd suggest to you it can be none other than the morning star that the scripture speaks of further on in this same letter. Revelation 22, verse 16, reads like this. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. And Jesus says, if you overcome, I will give you the bright morning star. In other words, I will give you myself. My friend, if you will give yourself unreservedly to Christ, Christ will give himself unreservedly to you. That's what he's promising here. If we will honour him in all things, if we will say, yes, Lord, you have spoken, therefore that is where we stand, that is what we will do. He says, I will give you myself and your delight and your joy and your satisfaction will be in me now and for all eternity. Amen. We're going to sing, come and see, come and see.